uh, we're talking about sanctification. Jesus, what we've been saying is Jesus accomplished salvation for us in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, the big question is how does that salvation that he accomplished then get applied to us? Uh, the short answer is union, union with Christ. That's how we started. And then last week we did justification, uh, big benefit. And now we're considering another benefit, the benefit of sanctification. Sanctification has to do with change. If you're going to put it in a word, good change, like change for good. Uh, before we jump in, before we jump in, let me pray for us and then we'll, uh, we will dig in. Uh, Father, we thank you for a place like this. Uh, a beautiful day like this uh, to talk about uh, the wonderful benefit and blessing of sanctification, your work in us. Uh, Lord, we pray for our kids that you would take care of them right now, and we thank you for Meredith and Emily who are uh, so giving of themselves to take care of them. Uh, bless our time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so everyone is super big on change. Everybody. Uh, everybody's big on change. New Year, resol- you know, that resolution stuff. Uh, the self-help books, the, those are super popular. TED Talks, podcasts, there's so many about change. Um, workouts, diets, the lifestyle change thing of, you know what, I need to uh, rest more, I need to vacay more, I need to hydrate more. That's like my new thing. I'm hy- that's not my new thing, but that's like people's new thing, hydrate more. Uh, every recording artist has a song called Change or Changing. Hilary Duff's is Metamorphosis. Um, culture can be schizo uh, on this and tell people there's nothing wrong with you. You don't need to change. Just be who you are. And, uh, and a lot of people take that to mean, uh, yeah, I got to be who I am on the inside. And so I got to change who I am on the outside to match who I am on the inside. And so whether we admit it or not, you hear all these different messages, none of us is satisfied with who we are. And um, for uh, a lot of us, there's a big part of us, there's a big part of us that doesn't want to change, uh, and yet we are still dissatisfied you know, with ourselves, our life. So we all have some ideal image of what I could, what I should be, uh, regardless if we want to work towards it. So change. Everybody's into change. Uh, the Bible agrees and says you do. You do need to change. Uh, the Bible says there are two fundamental consequences of sin. We've pointed up that first one. Uh, one uh, is that our sin affects our status before God. It renders us inexcusably guilty before God, liable to his wrath, his just wrath, deserving of eternal condemnation. Okay, that's justification stuff. We've, we've done that. The other fundamental consequence is that sin affects our condition, our disposition, uh, our conduct, our makeup as people. So w- what it does is sin leaves us thoroughly corrupt. Uh, and the big question is, is, does God, our Savior, do anything about that? Or does he simply forgive us in Jesus and ignore our corruption? Now, that sounds like obvious. Well, of course he's going to do something. But I'm telling you, beloved uh, theologians, not naming any names, but uh, systematic theologians who would say, people really don't change. Like Christians. Christians really don't change. Um, I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's biblical. So imagine a friend that you've uh, not seen in months shows up on your doorstep uh, in dire, dire need. Like just, they look awful. 
they're in rags, they're in tatters, they're, you, you're, they're severely malnourished, they're super dehydrated, they're very sick. So you bring them in, you get them showered, you get them cleaned up, good shave, uh, and dressed in new clothes. And then you just send them on their way. Is that, is that, being, you know, is that being a good friend? No, your friend is still starving. Your friend is still extremely ill. You got to feed them. You have to give them medicine. The half, just half measures, it's not good enough. And God doesn't deal in half measures. Uh, Half the problem of our lives, as in, uh, we just need forgiveness of sins. We just need justification. He doesn't do anything about our sinful corruption. That's not biblical. Uh, As one commentator put it, puts it, how could, God, how could our God who hates sin so much and who loves sinners so much with a love so great that he did not even spare his own son to save us, how could God be so unkind to leave us in the misery of the slavery of our own sin as slaves to Satan? How could he leave us dead? The good news is he doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, he does a work in us, not just for us. So the justification stuff is this is what God does for us sanctification is this is the work God does in us that changes how we act, how we think, how we speak. This is sanctification. So here's how I want to run through this. There's so much to talk about with sanctification. We're not going to get to all of it. I'm going to use this outline that uh, New Testament scholar, uh, what's his first name? Irons. Uh, um, Super helpful outline here talking about sanctification. I'm going to walk through this. Y'all can take notes, ask uh, questions. And if you don't want to take notes and you want these notes, I'll give them to you later. That's for any of the union justification, sanctification stuff. Um, so first, first point is, this is really important. Sanctification is not by works. It is not by obedience. Sanctification is not by the law. It is not by rules, efforts. It's not by your resolutions. Romans 7 says uh, that Um, It talks about the inability of the law to sanctify us. This is verse 5. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, so ironically, Paul says the law does not restrain sin. It stirs it up. Romans 7, 7. Uh, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So the law itself is not responsible for sin. That's, he's really clear about that. He says the sinful flesh is responsible for sin. But what happens is, is the law comes along and it stirs up sin. And when Paul says law, what he's describing is he's dry, describing the law given to Israel at Sinai. So he's not talking about some universal law. This is the law at Sinai was given. This is a whole other, we've, we've talked about this time and again, but the law was given at Sinai, uh, given to Israel um, uh, as a means of Israel inheriting the kingdom blessings of God. So getting to be his kingdom people, getting to have the land of Canaan, getting to have a dynasty of kings chosen by God. All they have to do to hold on to that kingdom of Israel is to obey in some measure, not, not even perfectly, but just some measure of obedience to the law, and they get to hold on to all these blessings. Uh, and Paul is saying that the law was not bad, but what it did was expose the sin and idolatry of the people. 
And so the point of the law was not to be a means of grace that would restrain uh, and cause the people of God to become more holy. Uh, The point is God is making, here's the point of the law, God is making his point on the grand scale of history that you cannot save yourself through the law. Uh, this is, it's like a repeat, theatrical, but real repeat of what happened with Adam in the garden with Israel. But you cannot save yourself through the law. The law is weak because of our sin, because of our flesh. And once God has made his point on the grand stage of history, he then sends his son so that it's through Christ and the Spirit that sanctification comes. Because Christ does what we cannot do. Romans 8, 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh okay here's kind of a big so what at this point a lot of reformed theologians will say that the law is the standard of sanctification as in it's like it's what we're working towards like here's our standard here's what we're supposed to be doing uh the law defines the obedience that god requires but then you have, some, uh, you have other Reformed theologians who take this a step further and they teach that the law is a means of grace. And let's say, although, uh, so this is one quote, although it is the Spirit who provides the empowerment to obey, the law is one of the means that God uses to restrain our corruption, mortify the flesh, and progressively make us more holy. The threats, the curses of the law, are there to goad us on and help us along the Christian life response would be this is not legalism uh that's justification by the law this is what we call nomism nomos being the law this is sanctification by the law uh you can go to galatians 3 1 to 3 colossians 2 uh verse 20 and on uh so we talked about the issues of different religions uh with justification trying to you know other religions trying to justify themselves based on uh, keeping their own laws and their own standards. You know, there's a problem of legalism, but it's not just a problem of legalism with other languages. It's also uh, a problem of nomism. So think of every, any other religion, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, all the religions of the world have these ideas that if you do these things, don't touch, don't handle, you know, certain things that would defile you, don't eat certain things that would defile you. If you treat your body harshly, you know, rigorously, you're in self-control, you're really, really hard on yourself in terms of discipline, Uh, you fight against the flesh, you fight against sin, then somehow you will overcome it. Paul says that seems to have the appearance of wisdom. That seems like a good idea, but it's not because that stuff doesn't actually restrain sin. So, sanctification is not by the law. It is not by rules. Rather, this is the second point, sanctification is a gracious, supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit. Yes. A common mistake is to think that justification is God's part, and then sanctification is our part. Uh, But we got to say that sanctification, just like justification, is the work of God. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, hey, we've been in this letter, chapter, this is 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians, that one, five twenty three. now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely 
and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We just did this one today. Uh, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Philippians 1, 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That good work in you is sanctification. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, which is awesome. Both to will and to work is not enough to cause us to work and do good things. God also wants to change our desires. And so he's at work in us both to will, that is to want to do what is good, and then to do what is good. Uh, he's transforming us from within, and that's why the law... This is why the law is unable to sanctify because it can't change our hearts. Uh, it cannot change our desires. It the law cannot make you want to obey. All the law can do is threaten you and say, if you don't obey, uh, then you're under a curse. And that is why we need Jesus and the Spirit to do this sanctification work in us. So, sanctification is the work of God. And this is one more step there. Sanctification is by faith. So when we say uh, that sanctification is the work of God, it doesn't mean we are passive. It doesn't mean we're totally, well, in a sense we are, but it doesn't mean we're totally, completely passive. Uh, sanctification is by faith. Acts chapter 26, verse 18. Uh, to open their eyes so that they may turn, open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Second Thessalonians 2.13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That's faith. So we've got justification by faith, right? As in, at some point, you've got to put your trust in Jesus. You've got to believe in him uh, and receive forgiveness for your sins and receive Jesus's righteousness as a gift. This alien righteousness counted as yours, credited to you uh, as a gift of grace. That's justification by faith. Sanctification by faith, not a different faith, same faith. What we don't hear a lot, though, is that you're also sanctified by faith. You begin the Christian life by faith, and you have to continue the Christian life by faith. So here's, uh, I think it's Lee, Lee Irons, uh, says this. He says, faith is not easy. The first mistake we, we make with sanctification is we screw up, and we think, dang, I need to work on my sanctification. I see my sins. I see my ongoing struggle, and I need to change. And so our immediate focus is on changing and what we can do to make ourselves stop sinning and make ourselves do the right things instead. And we skip the first step, the first and all important step of exercising faith in Jesus for sanctification. Okay? Here's the next point. What is that faith that we exercise? It's this. We want to say that sanctifying faith means reckoning that we are dead to sin and we are alive unto God in union with Christ. So here's where the union stuff comes in. 
So our faith is not just, not just believing that Jesus died for our sins, taking the wrath of God for our sins, and that he lived a life of perfect obedience in our place. And therefore he earns heaven for us and we get it all by grace. That's faith that justifies, okay? You also need faith that sanctifies. Our faith is also about believing, having the faith that we are dead to sin and we are alive to God in union with Jesus. So the big, big passage here is Romans 6. Um, A few verses here. Let me just, this is all about sanctification by faith in union with Christ. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? Like we have justification. Woohoo, awesome. And he says, okay, so now what should we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that uh, that, uh, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, it says, it's translated self. I I think man is better, even for uh, the ladies of saying our old man, because what that gets at is who you are in Adam, the first man. Uh, We know that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one, has, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. He's saying like right now, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a lot, and you're like, totally lost me. Maybe. Or maybe you were following along. Romans 6 context. In Romans 5, Paul's talking about the two Adams, Adam and Jesus. And he's saying in the first Adam, remember, in covenant with God, God, uh, uh, Adam is our first representative. He's the one who, who represents us before God. And we fall into sin and death in Adam, in that first Adam, because of what he did. So what he did gets counted to us. In the second Adam, we are reckoned as righteous and we are given eternal life, okay? So these two Adam, think about it. This is one way to really think about sanctification. In these two, ad, these two Adams, they correspond to two, two ages. Just think about it. The present sinful age is under the headship of who? we would say is under the headship of Adam, Adam. So the present sinful age is under the headship of the first Adam. And so it's under the curse, okay? But the age to come is under the headship, think age to come, heaven stuff. The age to come is under the headship of Jesus. That's the age of righteousness. That is the age of life. Paul says we have been transferred. We've been transferred from one lordship to another. We've been transferred from one age to another, from one head to another. And in that context, this is what he's explaining. This is how he explains sanctification in Romans 6. He says, with justification, we exercise faith in the sense of, like think of justification. 
What's faith with justification? We, we, we recognize we're utterly hopeless. We're hopeless. We're helpless in our sin. We're guilty. I have no righteousness. And therefore, I go to Jesus with empty. I got nothing. I come to Jesus like this so that I can receive his righteousness. If I've got stuff in my hands, oh, look, I was really good, like, you know, for most of my life, and, uh, but not prayer, I can't receive. You got to come empty hands to receive Jesus' righteousness. Uh, that's faith that receives Jesus' righteousness, his life, death, his resurrection. That's justifying faith, okay? With sanctification, we have to exercise faith in the precise sense of reckoning that we have died to sin in union with Jesus' death and that we've been raised to newness of life in union with Jesus' resurrection. I'm going to explain this more. Okay, because we want to say, like, wait a second, how is that true? Like Romans 6, 6 says, we know that our old self, our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And that may, we want to ask, is that, like, is that really, really true? Like, is my old man, my old self really done away with? Is my old self really crucified, gone, dead, buried, no longer existing? That doesn't seem true to me because I still struggle with sin. Like every day, all the time, every day. And the answer is, is that true? The answer is, yes, it is true. It is true of you in Christ. It is by virtue of our having died with Jesus and our being raised with Jesus in his resurrection. It's by virtue of being in Jesus in his death and resurrection that this decisive breach with sin for us has occurred. So Jesus did something on the cross in his death. Uh, think of it this way. Think of it this way. Jesus never personally sinned, right? Never sinned. He lived a life of perfect obedience. But as our substitute, he subjected himself to the guilt, to the power of sin in his crucifixion and death. But when Jesus died, he died to the power of sin's dominion. Because once Jesus died, he was no longer in a state of being able to sin. Does this make sense? His body went into the ground, he's in the grave for three days, and his soul is in heaven. And you don't sin when you're in heaven. Okay, and then he was bodily resurrected three days later, and he was glorified. He descended into heaven, and there in heaven right now, he is only able to not sin. He is unable to sin forever. So, on the cross and in his resurrection, Jesus has utterly shattered the power of death in himself. Shattered the power of sin in himself. And since, does that make sense? Like Jesus is in heaven right now, he can't sin. He has overcome sin and death forever and ever and ever. That's the Jesus you're united to by faith. Since Jesus, our resurrected Lord and Savior, is the one we are united to, we have his death to sin, his resurrection to righteousness. So the moment, the moment sinners are united to Christ by faith, they are delivered from sin's enslaving power. When you come to Jesus by faith, you are freed from, the, from your bondage to sin as master. He's no longer your master. So ask yourself this. Is Jesus in heaven? 
is he in heaven still being tempted to sin? No. He is beyond temptation. Is he still there resisting sin? No. Uh, 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 No. Is Jesus under the dominion of sin and death? No. He is raised. He is alive. Romans 6, 9. Therefore, because of our union with Jesus, we too are no longer under the dominion of sin and death. And this union, it is by faith. It's, uh, it's the same faith that justifies, also sanctifies us. So, let me bring up an object- objection. Someone's going to say, no, wait a second. If I'm delivered from uh, the dominion of sin, why do I keep on sinning? Okay. Because, because although you are delivered from the dominion of sin, you're not yet delivered from the presence of sin. Sin will still trouble you because we're not in heaven, it will still allure you. Sin will whisper to you, I am your master. You have to give in. It's a lie. You actually don't have to give in. Sin in the end, and this is how we will know, in the end, sin will not rule over you. And you'll know that in heaven. And it doesn't, it, doesn't seem, it doesn't seem true as, you know, as you look at yourself in the mirror, as you look at your life, and uh, that's why, that's why uh, this is what we mean, sanctification by faith. You have to faith it. We walk in this life not by sight, but by faith. Uh, looking not at ourselves, but looking at Jesus with eyes of faith. You run to 2 Corinthians 5, Ephesians 2, Colossians 3 for more of this wonderful, fun stuff. Uh, John Owen, one of, you know, big theological hero, um, he said this. This is super, I think this is so, so helpful. I know you hear John Owen, you're thinking, old theologian, you're like, I'm not going to get it. You, this is brilliant. Listen to this. The major difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, the major difference, he says, is that the dominion of sin is broken in the life of the believer. He says that's the biggest difference between a Christian and non-Christian is that the dominion of sin is broken in the life of the believer, but sin is still present in the life of the believer. So there are two basic problems for pastors. This is like how I do the, the whole pastor thing is by, according to this. There are two basic problems for pastors. One, to convince those under sin's dominion that they really are under sin's dominion. These people you evangelize. Okay? Two, to convince those not under sin's dominion that they really are not under <laughs> sin's dominion. These people you continue to disciple with the gospel of grace. That's the work of a pastor. It's looking at y'all and saying, you are not, sin does not own you. It is not your master. It does not win in the end. You know, the justification stuff and the sanctification stuff. Now, we don't, we, we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that we can be entirely sanctified in this life, as in you're going to get to a point where you no longer struggle with the presence of sin. Uh, that's a problem, unfortunately, in some e- evangelical circles. Uh, in the 18th century, John Wesley, who's the brother of Charles Wesley, Charles was a better theologian than John, um, his brother, John Wesley taught the necessity of what he called a second work of grace after conversion. 
in which uh, a person achieves what he calls entire sanctification. That in the state of entire sanctification, one has perfect love for God, untainted by conscious sin. That you can get to this point where you stop sinning. Uh, The New Testament does not teach that. The New Testament does not teach a two-stage theory uh, of the Christian life doesn't teach conversion and then a second work of grace. And, but the passage that people who believe this, they run to is Romans 6 to 8. With Romans 6 and 7 uh, being the struggle of the Christian life, that's, Romans 7 is a part where Paul is like, ah, the stuff I want to do, I don't do. And the stuff I don't want to do, that's the stuff I keep on doing. Who will deliver me from this you know, body of, of, of sin? Uh, so uh, they, they run to Romans 6 and 7, but then there's this turning point in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They take that and they're like, see, here it is. Uh, Paul has finally made it where he's been released. Uh, uh, he's gotten to the point where he's laid it all on the altar. Uh, this is where you come forward at that altar call. Uh, and the second work, now this point on in your life, uh, it's just going to be awesome with Jesus because you're finally free of this terrible life of sin. Uh, and you know, you're going to hardly have any sin at all. Maybe, maybe, maybe a few bad thoughts here and there, but they're super fleeting. And every day with Jesus is just sweeter than the one before. And, uh, uh, and you just realize now how awesome Jesus is. Uh, I had, oh no, don't do that. Uh, I had this experience at a, uh, a Christian retreat camp where at the end, we, you get to the altar call, you know, at the end, the camp, the, they're like, okay, now who, you know, uh, who's, who's going to give their life to Jesus. And maybe you had one or two unbelievers actually come to faith. Awesome. Like, that's the awesome part. But then mostly it's Christians coming forward for the altar call again, uh, and claiming this kind of second work of grace where they're really, really, now they're really, 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 really on fire for Jesus. Um, and I, I mean, as this is going on, I had friends, I had friends and I had some of the counselors like, Come on, Blake. Come on, Blake. I'm like, you. Know, I'm a Christian. Like, I'd be, like you know this. Why well, I don't need to stand up and like, and, and the guy who went at the very end was a uh, you know young guy who's I, I I didn't know him, but you know he was given all the answers to all the questions of like he's a super faithful guy. And at the end, he, he stands up and they end with him. I, it almost seemed planned. He's like, the prodigal son has come home. The prodigal son's returned. And just the whole camp like, God! I was like. We are, you are a Christian. Uh, so I, I just, and that's not what the prodigal son is about either. Um, <laughs> so uh, anyways, it was just like that kind of stuff. Uh, you're just like, yeah, that's, that's not good. That's not, that's not biblical. Uh, and it's a misinterpretation of the Romans 6 to 8 passage because Paul is not talking. He's not, he's not speaking of a process that takes place after conversion. He's wrapping up his, the struggle of sanctification and how hard it is. And he's wrapping it up in 8.1 uh, 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 back to the glory of conversion itself and, and what it means uh, forever and ever and ever of coming to faith in Jesus, um, even in the struggle of this um, life of sanctification. So, uh, one, it's not biblical. The other problem with uh, the Wesleyan theory is it, it actually doesn't work in practice. Uh, it leads to one of two kinds of people. Uh, one, the sensitive Christian uh, will never be certain that they've achieved entire sanctification, and so will always be sensitive to continued sinfulness, and they're going to be super, super discouraged, and they're going to lack all kinds of assurance. 
second, it's going to uh, produce the Pharisaic Christian who's going to claim that they have achieved entire sanctification, and then they just try to explain away uh, and justify their sinfulness with, with things like, uh, that was not a conscious sin. Uh, or, uh, you know, a sinful thought, but I didn't actually act on it. You know, not a sinful deed. Or, you know what, I'm not really guilty of that because that was just my flesh uh, that did it, not my heart. Uh, and that kind of super spirituality breeds all kinds of self-deception and hypocrisy. Uh, this is actually how a lot of, a lot of big-name guys get in huge trouble um, is they, they grab onto some form of this. Uh, they're just... They're so holy. Uh, surely God would allow them just a little bit of sin here and there. Um, so, and that's why First John 1, 6 to 10, like if you say you don't have sin, you're in big, big trouble. Like that's why that stuff is so important. Um, so this is what is true about your sanctification. Uh, and now, and this is going to go much quicker. Um, I, so that's, I want to look at the so what now. The, uh, this is kind of the indicative part of sanctification. This is what's true about you and your sanctification. And now it's like, so now what do you do kind of thing? What does this practically look like for you? Um, and here it is. There are two aspects there to the imperatives of sanctification. There are two aspects to the imperative of sanctification. Mortification is putting to death your sinful deeds and desires. And vivif- vivification uh, which is rising to newness of life. This is Calvin. That's Calvin's thing of mortification, vivification. Um, so just the neg- this is going to be super quick. Negative side of mortification is the mortification of the flesh. Uh, Romans eight twelve. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's mortification. Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Uh, Put to death, this is Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So back to John Owen. John Owen says, mortification of sin is peculiar, I can't say that word, peculiarly from the death of Christ. As in, let faith look on Christ in the gospel as he is set forth dying and crucified for us. Look on him under the weight of our sins, praying, bleeding, dying. Bring him in that condition into your heart by faith. Apply his blood so so shed to thy corruptions. Do this daily. The Spirit alone brings the cross of Christ into our hearts with its sin-killing power. Uh, that's from his volume six. He wrote an entire volume, this great, wonderful book on, it's called Of Mortification of Sin. That's the summary right there. Uh, mortification, what Owen means is mortification means looking on the death of Christ. And when you look on the death of Christ by faith, uh, the Spirit will deaden those desires in you more and more so that you're less and less eager to fulfill those sinful desires. It's not going to happen perfectly. And it may look like, more and more may look like, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, you know, as you go day to day. Um, That's mortification. The positive side of sanctification is being transformed by the Spirit into the image of Christ. 
If I could pause here and just say like, maybe the two biggest images when you think about sanctification are, I think the two age thing of you, you actually belong to the new age, age of heaven and earth, heaven stuff. Like that's, that's where your true residence lies. You're, you're a citizen alien here. This is not your true home. So that's one way to think about sanctification uh, is, that, is that you really are dead to sin and alive to Christ in union with him. That's really, really true of you. Sin is not your master because you belong to that new age. That's one way to think of it. Uh, another way to think of it is the image of Christ. There are a few components to the image of God. Like what does it mean to be made in the image of God? I'm going to give you the three that I think are the best summary of it. One is uh, having dominion. Uh, over creation, like you're, you're, you're like a king in the image of God. You're supposed to have dominion over creation, take care of creation, utilize it faithfully kind of thing. Uh, another one, and we could talk all, all kinds of fun stuff about that. Another one is uh, uh, being made in the image of God is not yet, but where we are headed, you will one day visibly reflect the image of God in terms of sheer awesomeness. Like you would be more beautiful, more powerful than you, than you could possibly imagine in the new heavens, new earth, raised from the dead, like physical. Like when John sees Jesus and, and he's describing, like that's what you'll look like. You will reflect his image in terms of sheer awesome beauty. Um, uh, the third one is the ethical holiness, like the holiness stuff of right doing right, doing good. That's the other image of God that we are to reflect that sanctification really speaks to of we are being uh, progressively made holier. And one day uh, that holiness will be perfect. New heavens, new earth. Um, we will not be able to sin, only able to do that which is just and right and good. Um, so the positive side of sanctification is being transformed by the Spirit more and more into the image of Christ. So what are you supposed to look like? Jesus. Romans 8, 11, the spirit, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 2 Corinthians three eighteen, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's Charles Hodge, another uh, theologian, he said it like this. It's super simple. He says, The Spirit opens the eyes to see the glory of Christ. This apprehension of Christ is transforming. As in the soul is thereby changed into his image from glory to glory by the Spirit. As you direct the eyes of your faith to Jesus, you can't help but be transformed more and more into his image. This is why we are constantly pointing you back to Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I want to get over this. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do this. I don't want to be angry anymore. I want to do this. Fantastic. Look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. And that seems like, ah, oh, come on. Give me something like I want to do something. Great. Look at Jesus. Um, and, and here are the practical helps in the pursuit of sanctification by faith. Since sanctification is by the indwelling spirit that transforms us, uh, here's another really fun uh, uh, way to think about this. The spirit, you know what the spirit's job is from beginning to end in the Bible? I bet somebody knows what I'm going to say. 
Anybody want to guess what I'm going to say? Spirit's job from beginning to end in the Bible is to replicate his image. So wherever the Spirit is, he's constantly replicating his image. That's his job. So when he indwells you, he is replicating, the power of the Holy Spirit is replicating his image, which is the image of Christ, in you. Um, So when we say that sanctification is by the indwelling Spirit that transforms us more and more into the image of Christ by faith, you don't need more of the Spirit. You got the Spirit. You don't need, like, the Spirit is the Spirit. If the Spirit's there, He's God. Like, He's there. You don't need more amounts of the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit. If you've got the Spirit, you got the Spirit. You need increased faith. So let me say that again. Since sanctification is by the indwelling Spirit that transforms us more and more into the image of Jesus by faith, what you need is not more of the Spirit. You've got it. You need increased faith. Which sounds like, wow, increased faith. I thought faith was faith too. Okay, what you need to do is exercise that faith. That's what you need to do. So sanctification by faith, you need to exercise your faith. Y'all, what are, like, this is, the, this is the stuff you could fill in the blanks here. What are the means, the means that God has given us to strengthen our faith in Jesus? Prayer. Worship. What was that? Sacraments. Scripture, the Word. Church. Worship. Fellowship. Being together. That's it. Uh, you... you uh, uh, he's given us these simple means uh, to strengthen faith in Christ, leading to a closer walk with Christ, leading to a closer experience with Christ. Uh, you need those means of grace. You could call the means of grace means of faith. As in, you need the Word. I'm going to run through these, and then y'all can ask me questions about these. You need the Word. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. Uh, the Word tells you who Christ is. Uh, and what he's done for you. Romans uh, 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It tells you who Jesus is, and it tells you who you are in Jesus. Uh, and it, it calls you to be who you are. And, you know, that's indicative. It tells you who you are in Jesus, and then it tells you uh, uh, who you are to be in Jesus. So it's like, this is who you are. Be who you are. That's the imperative. So you've got the word. You've got the sacraments. Love the sacraments. The sacraments are these visible signs of the invisible grace of God. Uh, what Jesus does by his Holy Spirit within us. I think there are two sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper. I want to ask questions. We can talk about those. Uh, another one is prayer. Really helped here by my buddy, uh, Matt Howell. Uh, you can look at the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. Uh, what is the purpose of prayer? Usually we run to and we think of the purpose of prayer is to get stuff from God. Actually, the purpose of prayer is to get God. To get God himself. There's a purpose to prayer. There's a precondition for prayer. There's a product of prayer. There's a practice of prayer. Uh, Purpose is to get God. The precondition is when you go to God in prayer, you have to assume his goodness. That's why we say our Father, because he loves you. He is good. So when you go, uh, the precondition for prayer is you assume He's good, and you, look, you see that most supremely in the cross. Uh, the product of prayer is love. You're going to love what he loves, and you're going to not like what he doesn't like. 
uh, when you pray. Uh, and you got to practice. You got to practice, practice, practice prayer. Uh, you got to practice, and you got to plan, and you got to start over and over and over and over and over because your plan's going to fail. So then try again. I, this is my job to pray for y'all. So it's why y'all pay the big bucks uh, is to get, you know, prayer. Uh, I, it is, I'm not a good prayer. Uh, it's hard. I've gone through so many different, like, this is how I'm going to do it, or I'm going to do it like this, or I'll do it like this. I'll tell you my latest version of it, which seems to be working, but it's only been a little while. We'll see how long this lasts. If you want to do, you get up in the morning and you have your daily devotion, your Devo time, that's fantastic. If you can get up in the morning and if you can concentrate for five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, that like you're a prayer warrior if you can, if you can do that. That's awesome. Um, if that works for you, fantastic. Do that. Uh, one pro just one problem I had with that, just for those who like, well, that doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me either because I, I was able to do that, uh, but then I'd go throughout the rest of the day and totally forget about God. That doesn't mean that's uh, everybody that does the early Devo then thinks about it. I'm just saying me. So what I'm now doing with prayer is, I even, y'all heard my alarm go off. I, I set an alarm. And so uh, Tim Keller, what Tim Keller does is he prays three times throughout the day. Morning, at lunchtime, and in the evening with his wife. Three times a day. And, and we asked him, hey, you're, you're at lunch meetings all day, right? He's like, I go to tons of lunch meetings every day. Okay, great. So when your alarm goes off, how do you, he says, I go to the bathroom. I say, oh, excuse me. I go to the bathroom, I close the stall, I pray. And then I go back out. It's just, and it's like, it's, it's not gonna not happen. I'm gonna pray in the morning for a few minutes. I'm gonna pray in the middle of the day for a few minutes. I'm gonna pray at night. He's like, I'm in prayer. Awesome. I'm doing some version of that, but I'm doing it like at the end of the hour. So that if I'm in a meeting, the alarm goes off. It's kind of like, hey, I gotta run, got another meeting. I can go, I can pray. And I'm just telling you, like, yeah, yep, uh, it's the prayer alarm. So, and, and y'all, I like, and it just, ju I'm just telling you just for me, like, it, it's a lot, and, and it's a lot, if you set up a bunch of reminders, as you, you, sometimes you're just not going to be able to get, you're like, God, I love you. Bam, done, prayer, awesome. Uh, thank you for Jesus. Uh, but there, you're going to have other moments where you can actually pray for 60 seconds. Like something's come up. I want to pray about this. And praying throughout the day, it does change things. Figure out some, something, something, something that'll help you touch base with Jesus throughout the day. Uh, if you can't pray with your spouse because that's super awkward, that's I would encourage you to try it. Uh, uh, but if you can't, that's fine. But find time where you can get away. You do, don't put a time limit on it. Like I have got to pray for five minutes to be holy. Ten minutes. Pray for 30 seconds, but just pray. And if you don't have anything to pray, grab a psalm, grab a, a, a prayer book, um, prayers that you've heard before that you love, write them down, pray those, and move on, okay? Prayer. Uh, fellowship with other Christians. Just going to say, uh, y'all, our faith is strengthened when we're around others. We, ha we cannot do this alone. It is not me, Jesus, and my Bible. No way. It's uh, just not how the church is described in the New Testament. Our faith is strengthened when we see faith in others, when we know that we're not alone in this, uh, that God has put uh, a, a family together. We need godly models to imitate, and then you need to imitate Jesus to other people. 
Um, all kinds of stuff. Romans 1, 8 to 12, Acts 2, 42, Ephesians 4, 15, 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. You want these verses? I'll give them to you. Fellowship is super real. We need it. Um, I, so I would say like traditionally it's word, prayer, sacrament. Fantastic. When we talk about sacraments though, we know the reformers are talking about sacraments in terms of worship. Worship entails fellowship. The sacraments entail fellowship. So just to make that clear, I would say word, prayer, sacraments, fellowship with other believers. And then Lee Irons wants to go another one and say uh, God's providence, especially trials, uh, are means of grace. But you don't go running looking for those. They'll come. They will come. Uh, but he says, Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Uh, and what's his purpose for you? That you would be conformed to the image of his son. And so God's providence, he would say, is another means of grace. And there are a whole other, you can run to Acts 14, 22, Romans 8, 17, Philippians 3, 10, Hebrews 5, 8, Hebrews 12, 10 to 11. Um, what they do is, we know this, we, we read, read this of that, uh, uh, trials, they test and they confirm our faith. That's James 1, 2 to 4. Um, they wean us off of earthly things that are passing. They draw our affections to Jesus. Basically, your trials make you run to Jesus. So, means of grace, means of faith in that, in that sense. Um, I'm going to end there. Uh, it's 4.30. That's a good uh, place to stop. Maybe I'll end with one more quote. I uh, really like this. Again, this is from Lee Irons, and then I'll take uh, questions. He says, your hope of heaven, think about this, your hope of heaven does not depend on your sanctification. Okay, your hope for heaven, it doesn't depend on your sanctification. Rather, your sanctification comes as a, as a result of your assured hope of heaven because of what Jesus has done. That's sanctification by faith. Your hope of heaven, you looking to Jesus, that sanctifies you. Um, we will uh, stop there. Uh, well, I'll stop there. And y'all, y'all ask questions or any questions, thoughts, comments? Tim, Kimmy. Let's start with Kimmy. Kimmy, go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, like, obviously on campus, a lot, if students aren't in, like, an official campus ministry and they just run into the street preachers who hang out by the library yeah. or on the stage, yeah. um, and then hear them say, like, oh, well, Paul says to be perfect, so obviously that's something that's attainable. I'm perfect. Right. Right. Whereas obviously we already went to say that thing. Right. Um, so I guess like what what would I say to students who might be more enticed by Well and that uh, but I think that is I think that's a big thing of just saying like, you know what, I get that, but that's really taken out of context. That's important to say that and point that up and don't just assume that like 
Yeah, be perfect because your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, what else would we expect Paul to say? Hey, be like, you know, be pretty good. Like today you should like, you know, do more good than you do bad today. That would be great. No, he's talking about their sanctification. And, so, and we talked about like, what is that standard of sanctification? Well, it's, it's perfection. That's what we're shooting for. That is our hope in heaven of we will one day. That is what we are and what the Spirit is working towards is nothing less than perfection. And how awesome is that, that one day that will be true. So that's the standard. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And, but you've got to let Paul keep going. And, and you're going to fail. And you're going to fail. And you're going to fail. What do I do? Well, the stuff I do is not the stuff I want to do. And the stuff I don't want to do, that's the stuff I keep on doing. And I'm really sick of it. And I'd really rather go and be in heaven. But I can't. I've got to stay here with y'all because this is what Jesus has called me to. So I, I, think, I think there's all, unfortunately, there's, there's just bad teaching. And so I think what you need to take real um, confidence in or encouragement from is you're on campus. Like, really, you're on campus. So keep going to campus is why we want to send you to campus. And so that's not the only thing those students are hearing. But you're not going to be able to shield them from all the bad stuff that they're going to hear. And I, and I'm, I share your struggle. This is why it was always really hard for me to go home from campus. I just freaked out about y'all. Just like, oh, my gosh, are they going to be okay? Are they going to be okay? And it's like, yeah, because God is God, and I'm not. And Jesus, Jesus is not. Yeah, I'm not. And so I can go home. I can go home. I can go to bed tonight. I can wake up tomorrow. And, and so you just take encouragement that you're there and that's really good. And Brooks is there and Gabriel's there. And there are other, there are other Christian ministries on that campus. And we're thankful that y'all are there. So um, it's just, uh, it's to be expected, unfortunately. And that's why we send y'all. is so that they are hearing the gospel too. Yeah. Yeah, that's the hard thing is like there's, there's truth to like every heresy. There's truth to like every bit of, you know, bad teaching is we, we do want to say like I wouldn't want to ever put it in the terms of like someone comes and says, I'm really struggling with this. You need to have more faith. Uh, I, I would want to, one, the first thing I'd want to say is you're struggling. Totally makes sense. And guess what's going to happen tomorrow? You're going to struggle again. Like struggle is the normal sanctifying experience. Struggle hardship, repentance, that like sanctification, another way to say it is sanctification is a life of repentance. That's that mortifying set. Like Owen doesn't ever, like that's part of the, the sanctifying process is that mortification of no, I'm, I'm turning away from that. I'm turning back to Jesus. And that's having more faith. So when we say you need to have more faith, I think I'd want to know is like, what do they mean when they say you need to have more faith? Because usually when we say repentance too, we say repentance is turn from your sin and turn to righteousness. Turn from your doing bad and turn to doing good. And that's that whole thing of you skip the step. And the, most important, the first and most important step of repentance is turn from this and turn to Jesus. 
And when you turn to Jesus by faith of, I don't want that. I want Jesus. I want you, Jesus. And I see you. I see your death. I know you died for me. How, I don't want to give myself to this. I want to give myself to you. You find the Spirit leading you then to good stuff. And so we want to say the good works is the fruit of your sanctification, of the work of the Spirit in your life. Um, so, so when people say you need to have more faith, I'd like to know what that means. And what I would assume it most likely means is you need to stop doing bad and you need to do good. You need to have more faith. Um, if they mean, hey, you want to stop doing bad stuff, uh, look to Jesus. Yeah. But that's normally not what people mean. when. So it is. It's true when we say have faith. What do we mean when we say have more faith? Or You're talking to a student. You're saying, I, I don't want to struggle with this. I'd say, I get it. And you're going to struggle. And, and Jesus is at work. You would, here's another way to say this. Uh, if Jesus was not at work in you, you wouldn't struggle. You wouldn't care. The fact that you're struggling, the fact that you are sad about it, the fact that you hate it, is Jesus at work in you by the power of his spirit. You wouldn't have cared otherwise. So have more faith. Like, don't you see you have faith? Take that faith to Jesus. I hate this. That's faith. So um, let's say that too. Just like start with the struggle of that's normal for a Christian to talk about struggle with that because you wouldn't say it's a struggle otherwise. So that's awesome. Keep struggling. Yeah, hate it. You can be sad. You can be sad about that stuff. But it doesn't have to, it doesn't dominate you. It's not your master. And then you, you know, Jesus is. He still loves you. He's at work in you. Does that help? Okay. Tim, and then we'll do Lindsay. Did you have a question? That's a great question. No. The elect who have, who like in time and space have been called, uh, given faith, responded in faith, cannot fall, not, not away completely. Uh, can, can they go through terrible, hard, dry, low seasons? Yeah, they can. And, and sometimes longer than you'd ever want. Uh, but no, ultimately, no, they cannot fall away. Um, and I wish I, you know, could pull up all that election stuff notes. Uh, but no, Jesus constantly talking about how those whom the Father has given me uh, come to me. And it never fails. Um, of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Here's another way to uh, think about it is, if Jesus, because we think that Jesus came and died for the elect. That he came and died for his people. That's why he was sent. Like, I'm going to give you a people, son. If you go live for them and die for them, I'm going to give you a people. The people I have chosen from, from all eternity. You go live and die for them. That's who Jesus came and lived and died for. Jesus, I mean, so what we're asking is, is it possible that Jesus would go through all of that only to lose some of his people? There's no way. He's not going to lose any of his people. The Spirit's not going to fail in his mission to apply that salvation and work it out from beginning to end. So... Yeah. So, uh, while you're thinking about that, it, also, if you have, I should have said this the first time, if you've got a question that you don't want to ask out loud, just text me. Shoot me a text. And then I'll say your name. This person. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh. 
text me text me a question and we'll do the anonymous questions too if you've got if you've got one Yeah. Yeah. So that is a great question. Question was just for a recording: if uh, election calling uh, and uh, the perseverance of the sa- uh, of the perseverance of the saints um, is true, does that make um, prayer unnecessary for unbelievers? Um, and the answer would be no. Uh, I'm pulling up this uh, one verse one. Just uh, back to your first question: say we know. Uh, we know that for this is Romans eight twenty eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be con- to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Like it's a certain thing. Like no one's going to fall away. Those whom He has called, He gets them to the very end. He gets them all the way home. Uh, is it unnecessary? Yeah, that's Romans eight twenty-eight to thirty. Eight twenty-eight to thirty. Uh, chapter eight, verses twenty-eight to thirty. Um, and there, there. Uh, send y'all more of those. Um, so, does that make it unnecessary to pray? Uh, no. This is where we run back to the means of grace stuff. Of like, God in His infinite wisdom, and it, according to His own divine will has determined, has, has predestined those whom, uh, predestined his elect, those who he is in time and space going to call, justify, and in the end glorify. So he knows who those people are. We don't. So we don't get to climb up into heaven and look over God's shoulder and look into the book of life and see our names and then, oh, my neighbor's name. Okay, well, I will get to work on that. You know, it's, that's just not, that's not how it works. So what we are called to do is not to have the mind of God in the sense of his, his eternal counsel, his eternal uh, divine. There's, there's his, what we, we did a, uh, I think, I don't know if this was, a, I think this was a sermon, and I'll try and find it because I think this would be helpful. We, we talked about his providential eternal will, which he's not revealed all of that eternal providential will, like who are the elect. We don't know everyone who's the elect. And then here, there's his revealed will. Don't hurt people. Uh, don't lie. Don't like, he's revealing what he wants us to do and what he doesn't want us to do. Put your faith in my son. You know, there's the revealed will and then there's his providential eternal will. Um, and, and we can't break his eternal sovereign will. Like what he has predestined, what he has sovereignly decided is going to happen in it happens. I mean, down to how you brush your hair and where that hair falls and how the blood moves. Like he's determined there's nothing outside of his sovereign will. Nothing happens outside of his sovereign will. His revealed will, we can break that all the time. Uh, don't lie. Okay, sure, no problem. Uh, I won't ever tell a lie. 
This is a lie. Uh, like, you can break his will all the time kind of thing. Um, so, when you talk about his eternal will and whom he has elected, we don't know. What he has revealed to us and told us we are to do is to uh, spread the gospel, to pray for unbelievers, and to pray for each other. Um, this is Romans 9. Oh, we're in Romans. Uh, he says, uh, do, 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 why am I not finding this? Um, oh, here it is. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. Yes. And so it is his will that you pray for unbelievers. It is his will that you share the gospel. Um I'll, I'll come to you next, Matt. It is uh it is his will like this is when we talk about the Holy Spirit and this is becoming more and more of a thing. We talk about the Holy Spirit and well I want the Holy Spirit to do this. Like, I want him to still, like, work in this manner and work this way, and I would like to partake of those supernatural, extraordinary gifts, because that's how I want the Spirit to still work. You don't get to tell the Spirit how the Spirit works. The Spirit gets to tell us how he works, and he has told us that right now he works through the ordinary means of grace. Uh, uh, he works through the word. The, this is Romans. This is the Romans 10. I think I said nine. It's in Romans 10. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? He's like, how are people going to call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Jesus of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? And, and so Paul is saying like, you guys have got to tell G people about Jesus. Like you ha how, how are people going to come to faith unless you tell them? And so the ordinary means uh, of grace that the Spirit uses are the word, prayer, sacrament. So yeah, we are. We're called. It's not a waste of time. Uh, thankfully, too, it's not, the Spirit is not dependent on us. Uh, Paul says elsewhere, listen, if you don't proclaim the glories of Christ, these rocks will do it. Like he can, he can, he can reach people, save people at however he wants to. But this is what he has told us, how he has determined, decided to work in his people. So, <laughs> this is follow-up clarification. It's a comment. Okay. Yeah, the means of grace. Yeah, yeah, it's sanctifying. Those means of grace are sanctifying, yeah. I appreciate the quick response there. Yeah. Not a question. Well, no, no, no. Back to, okay, so proselytizing and witnessing other people, all right, spreading the good word. If they're not elected, then they're not going to hear it. This is true. So, I mean, how do you know how much to really try on somebody? What I, what, I would, what I would say is, no, I get, so the question is, if people, are, if people are not elect and you're trying to share the word with them and, they're not, and you're trying to share the word and they're not elect, they're not going to believe it anyway, so how hard do you try? Again, I would, again, I would go back to you don't know. Uh, one, you don't know whether or not they're elect. That's not, that's not uh, we don't operate on the basis of 
I think that person's elect. I don't think that person. God could right. never save that person. You've got to run to people like Paul. Well, and, and uh, so who, yeah, who's listening uh, and how much the person you're talking to is listening at that point, and you may be sowing seeds that other, someone else comes along and then waters, you know, this the imagery, this biblical imagery of someone else comes along and is like, you know, you're not the one, you don't get to see the fruit of your labor. That happens a lot. Happens a lot in college ministry because uh, you only have students for, you know, a very limited amount of time, and, you know, you're, you're sowing so many seeds and you're not getting to see like 20 years down the road, you know, a lot of the fruit of your work. And so we, we, you know, try to encourage each other of like, you just, you never know what that conversation might do for them in a year, two years, five years. You just don't know. And so one, that's like, you do, you need to share the gospel as you can, as you have opportunity. And I would say, if you're talking to someone and they don't want to hear it, stop. Like, if you're like, hey, yeah, we can talk about this. And they're like, you know what? I don't want to hear that. And be like, you sure? Okay. Uh, you, you don't, if people don't want to hear it, you don't have to, you shouldn't berate them. Um, yeah. Right. Well, and I would, yeah, and I, I, I would, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, uh, uh, how do you, how do you reconcile? I actually, I really like, I really like the way you say that of it's for anyone. It's not, it's not for, I mean, and you say, yeah, it's for everyone. Uh, and, and so what we do want to hold on to is the gospel is, for everyone in the sense of all peoples, anyone who wants it, Jesus is for them. Uh, and, that, and you are free to leave. Like, that sounds Arminian, which you know, that sounds like we're not, you know, talking like reformed and like, you know, no, we need to say, hey, this isn't for, you know, you might be in. That's not, that's not how Jesus talked to people. That's not how Paul talked to people. They went out and said, you need to repent you are perishing without Jesus. You need Jesus. This gospel is for you. This grace is for you. You can have it. It's like, I'm the worst person in the world. Exactly. And he died for you. And you need it. And, and, and you could, you're never so bad that you, that you can't have Jesus. Um, uh, did I say something wrong? Uh, like, you're never beyond, you're never beyond grace. You're never beyond it. And so we, wanna, we want to make sure we're clear of, it's for everyone. Is everyone going to be saved? No. And that is why we're not sitting back and saying like, whatever, no big deal. Like everyone will be saved. No, people are going to perish without the gospel forever. We don't want that, which is that drives us out. Uh, you know, uh, Penn and Teller, uh, I think it was Penn, Gillette said, if, if, you know, I don't respect Christians who don't like, who don't honestly believe in the awfulness of hell. Like if you actually think that hell's real, 
or he's like, I don't respect Christians who aren't willing to share their faith with others because they're embarrassed or they don't want to offend. If you think people are going to go to hell if they don't have your Jesus, why would you not tell everyone about Jesus? And so, so that, that thing too of like, we really do believe hell's a real thing, that people are going to perish forever. It should, it should, it, that should lead us beyond our embarrassment, our awkwardness, not to be belligerent, not to be mean, judgmental, but like, listen, if this is for me, trust me, this is for you because I'm the worst. And if this can be for me, I promise you it can be for you because there's no way you're as bad a person as I am. That it's for you? Yeah, yeah you believe. As in the, like, I, I, I do, I love Jesus. Am I perfect? No. Am I, uh, do I, am I a terrible sinner? Yes. Do I need Jesus? Yeah. Do I follow him like I want to? No. Will I ever? No. I'm holding on for dear life. Yeah, you believe, you know. Cammy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you can be, you know, the, and really at, Yeah, the, the chosen thing, like, I can know I'm chosen. I, I, again, I want to be really clear. When the Bible talks about you being chosen, when you being... Prayer time. Prayer time. Uh, and we, we are going to close in prayer here in just a minute. I want to give Cammie uh, uh, the last question. Um, I know you've got your hand up, but you've already gotten to ask a question. I'll deal with you afterwards. Uh, so uh, you can state your purpose later. Um, so I would say, I would say, again... The, the chosen predestination stuff is always encouragement. It's meant to be encouragement, not like this badge of, you know, chosen right here uh, on the back of my jersey. It is, it is this thing of thank you, Jesus, for coming to me because I couldn't come to you on my own. And, and because I, and so Bronwyn saying of because I have come to you, it must mean that you're at work in me. And if you're at work in me, you're never going to let me go because you also promised me that. So... I'm going to go and try and love people and try and love Jesus. Cammie. I think accountability is, so the question is, how can we hold each other accountable? What do we do with accountability when we don't want to be legalistic? We do want to keep looking to Jesus, but so what does accountability look like? Um, I think accountability is, uh, is, is best had in the church. Uh, I think it's best had among people who know each other and are actually doing life together. Rather than holding people accountable over Twitter, someone you've never met, like that just doesn't, that's not accountability. Um, you know, uh, so I think accountability happens, one, here in the family, the church family. Uh, the pastors try to hold each other accountable at the presbytery level and the, you know, the general assembly level where we try to hold, you know, by holding each other accountable, we're trying to hold our whole denomination accountable to Jesus. Uh, the personal accountability stuff, I think, is best, ha is best 
held at the the personal level and i think you have to even like hey you're my brother and sister we go to church together like i see this i see this uh it needs to be done in a spirit of gentleness and in a spirit of love and the other person needs to know without a shadow of a doubt like this person's holding me accountable because they love me and i like i hear your love i hear your love okay just tell me to hit me straight like come on what do i that was wrong right yeah that was wrong you know uh but it, it needs to be accountability is going to go far with uh when we actually really trust each other with you're coming to me in grace and you're not coming to hit me over the head with the law because the law because that's that thing of the law is not going to you come to me with the law it's not going to sanctify me like that's not going to change me if you come to me in grace like are you okay like hey like this is hard you know are you going is something going on is something hard like and again you're able to get to that stuff if you know each other so we got to get to get to know each other better and let each other into our dirty nastiness of you don't know this i'm a jerk uh and you know you'll see that if you know we hang out long enough kind of thing like like we got to let each other into our lives so that we can lovingly hold each other accountable if we don't know each other we try to hold each other accountable it's going to come across as law 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 even if we don't mean it so there's some people who you just you don't even have that relationship yet to say certain things you want to say to them and it's going to take the hard work of getting to know them so that they know you're coming with grace um, so, uh, and like, and then there's all kinds of practical stuff of like doing it personally versus like in a group. <laughs> hey y'all, I need to talk to y'all about my brother. Um, I want to tell y'all some stuff about him. Uh, like that's not going to, Matt, can I tell you, uh, no, like it needs, yeah, it needs to be, it needs to be, it needs to be, you know, held, um, I think it needs to be done well. I think it needs to be done faithfully. It needs to be done in a spirit of gentleness and faithfulness and love. And that takes time and effort and work and getting to know each other. So, but the people that you do have in your life that you can do that with, like accountability is, it's, it's a must. Like that's part of the fellowship aspect of it is we got to cut, we get, you got to stop. You can't do that. Can't talk to her like that. Can't, you can't say that stuff to him. You know, sometimes it is, and it can lead to a butting of heads, but it, it's just constantly coming back to, I'm telling you this because I love you. I love you. And you know my problems. Yeah. And I think like looking to Jesus. So I want to say the, the overarching thing of looking to Jesus. What are the means by which you look to Jesus? Through the word, through prayer, through the sacraments, and through fellowship. Like holding each other accountable is going to, someone's going to look at you and say like, I, I get it. That's a struggle. That's hard. You know Jesus loves you. Right? Like you don't want, I'll direct you to Jesus. Like I'll take you there. Like that, and that's the, uh, you know, the beauty of fellowship and the, nece the necessity of fellowship is we will direct each other as we're holding each other accountable. And it's not holding each other accountable with the law. It's holding each other accountable with grace. And Jesus, you, yeah, agreed. Yeah, Jesus doesn't want that for you. Yeah, Jesus wants this for you. And he loves you. So I agree. I think personal account, I think you need to get to that point where you've got friends that you can let in. And you can't, you can't do it with everybody. Uh, don't tell everybody your deepest, darkest, 
awful secret. There are going to be a couple people that you, that you have that you go to that, that can hold you accountable in those ways that you need accountability for sure. Um, but that doesn't therefore mean to just tell everybody and wear your heart on a sleeve. That's not wise. That's, that's not wisdom. Um, so I know this still, I know there are tons more questions. Um, y'all come to me. Don't hesitate. We will be talking about sanctification again. We could do a 12 part, 13 part series on sanctification. It'd be super awesome. Uh, and we'll do that at some point. So, uh, this is not, not the last time we'll talk about this, but let me pray for us and then we'll, uh, we'll scoop. Father, we thank you for your son, and uh, we thank you for your spirit, uh, and we thank you that uh, through the work of your son, and the work of your spirit in us, uh, you are at work loving us and transforming us, and we long for the day when that transformation will be complete. We know that you will get us to that finish line. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. We know that. Now help us to believe that. <laughs> And help us to trust it today and then wake up tomorrow and believe it tomorrow and the next day until you come back or until you call us home. Get us home, we pray in the name of your son. Amen. All right, you guys.